Welcome to episode 49 of Paper Talk, a monthly series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the field of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper, featuring stories about people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper. Sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about my online classes, workshops, how-to books, and the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat, and my new papermaking masterclass, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com. Today I'm talking with Robert Lang, a leader in the field of folding paper. He uses mathematics to advance origami folding techniques for applications in technology, like folding a giant telescope into a compact form so that it can travel to space. We chat about his journey from discovering origami as a child and devouring books on the subject, to coming up with his own design methods for folding, to developing a computer program called TreeMaker, which helps with complex folding structures and has led to consulting jobs around the world. Eventually, I got TreeMaker working and working to the extent that I could design something with it that was more complex than I could do inside my head or, or just with pencil and paper. And so I realized this was at the first time that a tool augmented human abilities. Robert has worked with a team at Brigham Young University on a theory called rigid foldability that utilizes origami principles of folding things from stiff materials. And of course we talk about folding paper, including an unusual commission for a television show. Enjoy our conversation. Well, Robert Lang, welcome to Paper Talk. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and I'm really excited to get to know you a little better and uh, to hear about your story with origami and technology. Um, so do you have a memory of the first time you folded a sheet of paper? I know you started as a child. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't remember the actual act of folding, but I do remember what my first folds were um, because they, they came from a craft book that had four of the traditional models. And uh, so I, I thought, this looks fun. I'm going to try to fold these and, and fold them. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that then I folded those same things over and over and over as one does when one is a six-year-old. Um, so the very first time is probably lost in the mist mists of memory. But I do have very strong memories of folding them over and over. Yeah, now that you say that, uh, my son, I think he, he was, yeah, six or eight, and he learned how to fold, I think it was a crab, and he folded, I think we counted them, it was like 140 of them, and it was, uh, yeah, just in an evening or a couple of days, so, yeah, wow, so then um, you kept folding throughout childhood, just kind of tell me how, how origami played in your life, your young okay. life. Yeah, so, so I folded those original figures over and over, mm -hmm. and I also uh, tried to make variations of them. 
Um, but for example, there's one called the talking crow, which is like a head and two front legs. But I felt like that animal needed a body. And so I would try to do things that would add a body to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, my parents saw that I spent a lot of time holding paper. And so they, uh, they fed the obsession, uh, yeah. both by uh, birthday gifts of origami books when they found them, and, and also just uh, taking me to the library regularly, where I could look for origami books in the library and check them out. And pretty much throughout childhood, whenever I went to a library or visited a bookstore, I'd always immediately go to the craft section, look for new origami books, because I wanted to fold, I wanted to learn how to fold everything that was possible to fold. And uh, again, as one does when one is a child. Uh, but then, uh, so that kept me going throughout childhood. Right. And, and where did you grow up? I grew up uh, mostly in Atlanta, Georgia, a little bit in around Dayton, Ohio, but mostly Georgia. Okay. So, right. So you were looking for, yeah, pre-existing models, but you had an inkling of uh, uh, you, could, you could change and do these, make them into something else which we'll get to throughout what you've done, I guess. So you went to college and you studied physics and you have a PhD and um, was origami always part of this? Yeah, origami was always this passionate hobby, mm -hmm. um, but it was, I, I never thought it would be anything more than a hobby, you know, just like stamp collecting or something right. like that. Um, I did always like to make things, I and mean, origami certainly grew out of that. And, uh, and, and so when I went off to college, I, I was interested in math, uh, but then when I took an electrical engineering course and started making circuits, the, uh, the urge to make things uh, kind of welled up within me. And so I, I majored for my bachelor's degree uh, in electrical engineering. And and spend a lot of time building circuits to do fun little things. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, along the way, I took a lab course involving lasers and optics, and then that got me interested in making things with light, you know, manipulating neat colored beams of light, intense beams of light, and, and that eventually led me into physics. Um, so my PhD was in uh, applied physics, focusing on lasers and optics. But one of the things that happened in college uh, was uh, when I went to Caltech, which is a pretty challenging school, and, and it kind of revved up my brain into high gear all the time. Mm -hmm. And that spilled over, not just for my schoolwork, but it spilled over into my folding. So that even though I had been folding on and off throughout childhood, in college, it it really revved up again. I wanted to, to try to create new things and did create new things and try to create things that I'd never seen anything like before in any of the various books that I'd, I'd gotten over the years. And so even though I was studying something different in college, electrical engineering and physics, that process both, they gave me the mathematical tools that I ended up using even later to do mathematical analysis of origami, but it also just revved up all the origami brain circuits. Um, and that got me folding much more avidly than I had in the previous several years. 
Okay, and were you using, what kind of paper were you using? Just traditional origami paper? Or were you oh, really all kinds. When I was a kid, the paper I used was scrap paper. Um, my dad would bring home packs of obsolete forms from his work, um, and I would fold those. And I think part of the beauty that, of origami that appealed to me as a child was that the materials were essentially free. I didn't have to buy stuff. And so I, I'd use scrap paper. Um, I'd go to, uh, I'd buy Christmas wrapping paper the day after Christmas, and it was really, really cheap. And then use that paper over the course of the next year, you know, and, and then restock the day after the next Christmas. So I used all sorts of whatever was available. Um, and did you, let me just ask you, did you, did you cut the paper into squares or did you start thinking out of the box and try other things? Oh, I had to cut the paper to size, you know, because yeah. Christmas paper comes in a big roll, and the um, and the the engineer or the uh, forms office forms were on letter size paper, and most origami was from squares. But at that time, sixties and seventies, um, some of the most impressive origami being done was done with rectangles, and uh, and there is this history of using rectangles in origami um, that goes way back. Uh, even the great Yoshizawa, 20th century origami master, used rectangles and other odd shapes of paper for some of his designs. So it was, it was a pretty established tradition uh, to use rectangles. And, and, and of course, rectangles vary in length and width and, and, and the like. And so if you wanted a rectangle for, of some shape, you had to cut the paper to size. So I just got pretty used to that, getting whatever, whatever paper I was using, I would cut, cut it to the shape I needed, even, even if it was a square. Mm -hmm. When did you stumble across other people folding origami? I knew they existed because origami books would always credit the, the, the artist who created the design that they were set by step instructions for. So I knew that there were all these other origami artists out there. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, and one of them in particular, an American artist named Neil Elias, I was especially impressed by some of the work I saw of his. And, uh, and I had one origami book that was, was probably the most frustrating origami book ever written because it just had pictures of finished designs, but no instructions at all. And the most impressive looking designs were by Neil Elias. Um, now, a lot of origami books of that period would have a bibliography in the back of the book of uh, you know, other books you could look for, but also of origami organizations. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote to the American Society, the Origami Center of America, and said, would you give me the mailing address of Neil Elias? And, you know, it was a simpler, kinder, gentler time then. People, they, they give out addresses. So they wrote me back and said, yeah, here's his address. And I wrote to him and um, said, I saw these neat things that you've done and I've loved your work. Um, I don't exactly remember what I said uh, in the intro, but then he wrote back. And over the next several years, we wrote back and forth. And um, he sent me some unpublished instructions for some of his amazing work. And I sent him some examples of things I folded, a lot of which, some of which used his, I, ideas I learned from him, some of which were ideas I had already come up with, 
in my other books. And so that was my first uh, interaction with a, you know, with a living person not mediated by the pages of a book. Uh-huh. But it wasn't until I think I was in graduate school that I met another origami person um, in, real, uh, in real life, uh -huh. as, they, as they say. Um, when I was able to go to, uh, I think I had a business trip to New York or something. I had a reason to go to New York. And so I visited the origami center in New York and met some folders there. This makes me remember uh, when I was just out of college, I was interested in paper and sort of stumbling around trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I moved to New York City and I went to a meeting, a folding meeting of the Origami Society. And <laughs> I don't remember what we did. It was way too hard for me. I just, I, it just turned me off, unfortunately. So I love origami. And I think I had tried, there are many books, as you say. And um, sometimes the instructions following them is difficult. And I don't know if you've, if you, because you've done so much origami, if you have any thoughts on either the training, the instructions, or the, the mindset for being able to do origami. Well, there's, there's kind of a combination. There's a mindset that helps to do origami. I think it probably helps to be able to do sort of 3D visualization. But there's also a wide variety in the quality of origami instruction. Yeah. And uh, you know, prior to the internet, it was all books and step-by-step -step diagrams. And, um, and some of the instructions were really bad. I mean, they're just objectively not well done, hard to follow, they're not clear. And, um, you know, and, and of course that, for some people that is enough to turn them off from ever trying it again because, you know, they think, oh, I can't do this, I don't have the brain for this when no, it's just that author is bad at instructing. It's kind of like math anxiety in school. Some people say, well, I have no aptitude for math. And, no, you just had a lousy math teacher. Um, right, right. Um, but there is, there is also a, a range of difficulty. And, and, and I think sometimes people don't appreciate how large the range of difficulty is. So if you, so you can, you can learn something easy, and then that prepares you to move to, say, intermediate. But it doesn't prepare you to, for the jump to super complex. Um, and, and, and so then, once again, if, if, you're, if you're going to a class or watching a video or following diagrams, and the jump in level of difficulty is too great, you, know, you won't be able to do it. Um, you won't know why, but it's just because you know, you, you tried to make too big of a jump. And if you, you know, did the next thing and sort of got comfortable with the next set of uh, techniques and challenges, then, then you could work your way up to that very complicated figure. Right. That's a very good point. And, and that probably is what I did. I probably got a complex book. Um, and maybe even this workshop I went to was way more complex than I should have been at. And, uh, yeah, you mentioned the internet and videos or YouTube videos. I can follow for origami much better. And photography also has gotten so much better over the years. I think looking at photos in books of origami or diagrams, sometimes the 3D visualization is tough. Um, yeah. Yeah, although there's, there's kind of a, there's, there's some ways videos are 
way better than diagrams. The big thing is a diagram gives you a static snapshot before and after. And the movement is we try to convey it with arrows that show motion. But since the arrows are still in the plane of the paper, you have to kind of picture the three-dimensionally what's going on from this curved line. Right. And you don't actually get to see any intermediate state in the diagrams. So because of that, video is much, much better for those kind of motions. However, when it comes to really complex actions where, um, where there may be 20 things or 40 things moving at once, parts of the paper moving in different directions, many folds that all have to come together at once. Um, in a video, there, it just doesn't convey all the important stuff that's going on. But in a diagram, you can kind of point out this, these five points are the important things. These things come together. So you can, and it, and the diagram stays there. So you can study it and sort of say, okay, this is the spot on my paper. This is the other spot on my paper. So for, for some things, diagrams are better. Um, so the, my advice to people folding is to try both because depending on what you want to fold, in some cases the diagrams will be easier for you and in others the video will. Right. That's a great point. And um, uh, just listeners, Robert's hands are going as he's talking, <laughs> like uh, mocking these motions. It's great. Um, yeah, I can't think without, you know, moving my, I'm <laughs> even, even if I'm, my brain cells are the only thing moving, my hands sort of have to follow. Right, right. So let's go back to your sort of trajectory and how you got into folding really complex folds and um, making a career of this. I know that's a, I don't know what's the next step we should talk about. Tree maker, perhaps, because we we're talking about sort of diagramming and. We'll, we'll, we'll get to tree maker. Okay. Let's follow that line of, of folding complex folds. Okay. And, and I'll say, I didn't really set out to fold complex things. I set out to, to try to create with the paper what I was seeing in my mind's eye, what I wanted it to look like. And very often that meant I wanted it to be very realistic. So if I was doing bugs or spiders, things like that, I wanted all their legs, I wanted them long and skinny. I wanted all the features in my subject. And the only way to get that was to do complex things. And I did develop uh, with, you know, lots of, uh, over the years, I developed sort of tricks and techniques to get complex shapes. And I was doing this in, in isolation, you know, I'm just working from books. And um, so I didn't really have a, a reference of the outside world, um, of, you know, where, where I fell in that. But when I took this trip to New York and the, uh, the people in New York said, oh, will you come, will you come teach us something? teach us a model you've invented. And I thought, oh, I'm going to teach a dragonfly because I was pretty proud of it. It had, you know, legs and wings and all this. Mm -hmm. And I started teaching and they're going, you know, and I'm teaching in front of them so they can see exactly what I'm doing. And they're going, wow, this is really hard. <laughs> and, and I realized, oh, okay, I, then I, I guess I'm doing complicated things. Mm -hmm. um, so... So that's kind of been the trajectory. Of, of, I'm, I'm very 
I'm comfortable trying complex things, and I don't feel any, any urge to keep it simple if I need complexity is what I need to get the visual impact I want. Um, and I mention that because I've got some friends in origami who, who do want to keep the folding sequence simple and, and are willing to kind of compromise the finished look if it creates a simple, elegant folding sequence. Um, and they are for the fold, and I, and I like folding that work, but, but the thing that really fires me up is if I can get the beauty of the finished object, and I'm happy to do something complicated if that happens. So that led to developing more and more techniques to, to design things. It led to exploring mathematical methods for folding. Um, and that eventually led to uh, the program I wrote called TreeMaker that you mentioned, which is, is a program that lets you draw a pattern and it computes a crease pattern that, um, that folds into that shape. And uh, it led into a whole lot of other areas besides, particularly the technology and engineering of Oregon. Right. So how did that lead into that? And um, I know you, this is like open source, right? This tree maker. So you were, you've shared yeah. it and every people can use it. So I'm sure. Is that how um, it led to other things or? I was exploring mathematical methods of folding with the, because I felt it would help me be a better artist. It would help me create the shapes I wanted to create. And writing the program TreeMaker was a way of testing out my mathematical ideas. Because if I had a theory about how you could design an origami object by arranging circles, um, I knew that for any impressive object with lots of detail, the number of circles you'd have to arrange and the problem of the finding the right arrangements would be too tough to figure out by a human being. So I'd use a computer to find the arrangement. So I wrote TreeMaker as a way of testing out my theory. Um, and you know, I'd run TreeMaker and see if it worked. And if it crashed, I'd say, okay, that means there's either a problem with my programming or a problem with my theory. Find out which one, fix it, and move on. And eventually, I got TreeMaker working and working to the extent that I could design something with it that was more complex than I could do inside my head. Or, or just with pencil and paper. And so I realized this was at the first time that a tool augmented human abilities. Um, you know, when you start out, you solve these little toy problems. You solve problems that you already know the answer to. And so it doesn't really augment, it just retraces the steps that you've done in your own mind in the past. But when I got to the point that with the assistance of the computer, I could do more than I could otherwise, then I realized it was significant. And I had a friend who is a computer scientist who said, oh, you, you, this is something unusual to write a computer algorithm that can solve origami problems. Why don't you write a paper and submit it, submit it to this computer science conference? Um, so I did, um, and they accepted it, and I, and I presented it, and uh, that got my name kind of into the scientific literature associated with origami. So what that meant was a few years later, when some engineers at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab 
who are working on a folding telescope, uh, said, we want to see if there's any work out there that's relevant to folding in the scientific literature that might help us come up with our telescope. They found my papers, they contacted me, I got involved with them, and that was my first big origami technology project. And in pretty short order after that, another uh, engineer, again, found my name and paper and contacted me. Um, and he was doing airbag simulation software. And we realized that some of the ideas that I had incorporated into TreeMaker uh, would also be useful in the simulation of airbags. That was the second big kind of origami technology project. And then uh, things just sort of snowballed from there. <laughs> right. And so you worked as a scientist for several years, and then you went out on your own. Is that correct? Yeah. I was... Um, so, you know, I wasn't planning on doing origami right. as, a, as anything more than a hobby. So I studied electrical engineering, applied physics, lasers, and optics. After I got my PhD, I uh, worked at Jet Propulsion Lab for several years, again, doing research on lasers and optics, and then uh, went to a company in Silicon Valley who was manufacturing lasers and optics. And I joined the R&D group there and then was with that company for uh, nine years in a variety of research-related roles, but all doing lasers and optics. And again, origami was a hobby, on, but, it, but a pretty passionate one. Nights and evenings, um, I wrote, over the course of that time, I wrote several books of my origami designs. And, uh, and, had, and because I was doing probably some of the most complex origami work had a, had a good reputation. Um, but I also had this idea of an origami book about uh, not just recipes for specific designs, but how you can design your own mm -hmm. and uh, how you could design anything you want. And I, I tried to write that book nights and weekends over the 15 years that I was working in lasers and just couldn't because I needed to hold the entire picture in my mind at once. I couldn't just put it aside and then pick it up a week later and do some more. The way I had with all my recipe books, you know, where there I could spend a weekend, diagram one model, right. you know, and then forget about it until the next. But this was a different kind of book. Mm -hmm. And I kind of came to the conclusion that if I, as long as I had a full-time job, I probably would not write that book. So what was more important to me? Um, the kind of career progression I was doing in, in lasers and optics or getting this book out. And I, I kind of decided um, there were plenty of optical physicists in the world. Um, the world would get along without me as an optical physicist. But, uh, but I felt like I was the only one who could write this design book. And, uh, and that it was important. So that was the trigger to quit my job and spend a year, year and a half writing the design book and see what happened. Um, and and so this, book, this book is called Origami Design Secrets? Right. And did you have a publisher? Just curious, for all your books? Yeah, I, I've had different publishers yeah. for the various books. Mm -hmm. um, 
my first books were Dover, St. Martin's Press. Um, this one was published by A.K. Peters. Um, and uh, I had, uh, I, I've been to a, a kind of recreational mathematics conference for several years where I'd gotten to know Klaus Peters, who was the, the K of A.K. Peters. Um, and he published mathematical and recreational mathematical and other books. And he said, uh, do you have anything? And I said, well, I'm thinking about this design book. And he said, I really want to publish it. Okay. Um, and so, uh, so he did. Um, and uh, I was very happy with it. We, uh, we did a second edition a few years back. And I've written another book uh, for Peters, which is now part of CRC Press. Um, so CRC is kind of my, my technical publisher. And then uh, when I go back and do another recipe book collection, um, it'll probably be with one of, one of the other publishers. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I saw in one of the videos of you online, and I'll post some of those in the show notes, um, you pulling out your hand-sketched design books. It looks like you have many notebooks of all these designs. They're beautiful. Yeah, I have uh, something. I'm up to number. I think I'm up to eighteen. Eight. Uh, three, three reminders. Um, and it's funny. One of the things I started doing, even as a kid, probably by the time I was eight or ten years old, uh -huh. was writing writing down instructions whenever I came up with something new. And um, so my binders go back to instructions I did when I was 10 years old. Wow. And um, I number, number everything sequentially. I'm, I'm closing in on 800. Um, and uh, it's just sort of fun periodically to go back and look through an old binder um, and you know, see, see things that I did ages ago. Say, oh, I forgot about that. Hey listeners, let's take a little break here, and I want to tell you about the Paper Year, a new monthly planner that is now for sale. Hooray! You can find it at bit.ly slash 12 months of paper. That's bit dot L-Y slash T-W-E-L-V-E months of paper. I'm rebranding the 12 months of paper calendar, a how-to book and calendar featuring a paper project every month, which I've produced for the past three years. The Paper Year is a wirebound book still featuring 12 paper projects by me and five guest artists. And this year, there's an added feature, a planner page a month, which allows you to jot down notes and plans, sketch out your ideas and dreams, and paste in swatches of the paper you use to create your projects. Again, you can find that at bit.ly slash 12 months of paper. Spell out the word 12. Now back to the show. So I want to go back to technology and this quote I read that you, you said, we can draw on ideas, structures, and mechanisms that already exist in the world of origami, but we can also use mathematical tools that describe the folding that allows us to design artistic origami to create new folding structures that specifically solve technological problems. So let's just talk a little bit about um, one of those two projects or a new project you're working on. The two you mentioned okay. already. 
Yeah, so, so to get into kind of this dual use aspect, I'll, I'll talk about a project I worked on starting about three years ago uh, with a collaboration with Brigham Young University, with okay. whom I've, I've now worked for about six or seven years. And uh, we were interested in the, uh, the, a theory called uh, rigid foldability, which is really, it's the theory of folding things made from really stiff materials. So paper is kind of bendy. And right. you can, as you're folding the paper, you can bend and curl shapes and you can do all sorts of things if, if you can kind of bend and curl the paper. But if you're making something for technology, it's going to be made out of, of metal or plastic or you know, something that's really thick and stiff. And you have to have explicit hinges where the folds are because the panels don't bend at all. Um, then if you want that shape to move, you, have to, you can't rely on curling and bending wherever you might need it. You, you have to use folding patterns that have the property that they work and are flexible, even if the panels are stiff. And that property is called rigid foldability. And it turns out very few folding patterns actually have that property. You look at almost every origami design that you might find in an origami book, at some point, you're gonna to have to curl or bend the paper to make that shape. It's not obvious. Because it, you do it unconsciously as you're right, folding. Right. Because there's straight lines, you think it would do it. But yeah, I you think straight folds, everything yeah. should be straight yeah. and flat. But, uh, but if you actually make one out of metal with flexible hinges and start folding, you very quickly realize, oh, I can't do this. Right. So, we, so, so this is a, an area of mathematical research. What fold patterns have this property of rigid foldability? And how can you design them? Um, and how can you design them to accomplish certain goals? And uh, so one, one of the papers we wrote a couple of years ago, um, we took some mathematical properties that, that, that had been identified by a Japanese professor named Tachi, and we realized that using this property, we could construct essentially a recipe for creating any large folding pattern just by choosing conditions on the left side of the shape and on the bottom of the shape. You choose where your folds were, you choose the angles that they propagate into the paper, and you choose the amount that each one is folded. And then from that, if you follow the rules, you could construct a huge grid of folds that would all move rigidly um, and have this property. So or if you want to create, for example, an architectural facade that, uh, you know, that opens and closes like the roof of a stadium or a shade structure, something like that, you would use this theory. This theory works for that. Mm -hmm. But in addition, we can just choose, uh, choose fold patterns using this theory um, that create visually beautiful shapes. And so I've done that. Uh, using laser scored wood veneer and I've got some images of laser scored veneer patterns on my website these are purely visual artistic origami objects but they use the same mathematics as uh, 
as the architectural functional objects. And it very often turns out that when we use math or origami principles to create some sort of functional shape, it's functional, but it also comes out beautiful. And that's just sort of a, a nice side effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So th this is research you're doing with Brigham Young. Did, it, uh, did you actually end up making something? Are you still working on something? Is there, is there an end product? I'm just curious. Yes, so we didn't have a specific application. We were basically building a tool set to be used for this class of things. Um, and, uh, uh, but, but we didn't have a particular application mind. But we, so we wrote our paper. Um, it's, it's out in the literature. We also wrote some computer code that is published open source. Uh, so people are now free to, to use this. And I, and I do know there are folks who kind of take this and now are building on it for some of the, some further developments that, 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 that they're trying to do in the area of developing tools for functional folding. Right, okay. Um, and so I'm curious how you, how you are hired for various projects, because I think you do some projects in the technology world and others in the art world, and um, like with Brigham Young, are you a consultant? Yeah, so in most cases, my technological work, I'm acting as a consultant. Okay. Um, about uh, seven years ago, the National Science Foundation funded a series of research programs at universities all over the country to develop essentially applications of, of origami, um, which, which was kind of, I think, a a testimony that by that time origami had become a legitimate field of, of study and applica technological applications were visible and things like the telescopes and there was a heart stent developed at Oxford University. Several other applications were out there that made it seem plausible that, that there would be more and that this was a worthy subject for NSF funding. Uh, and, and so that started a whole bunch of research projects at schools at MIT and Harvard and BYU and, uh, and many, many more. And, uh, and I was uh, hired as a consultant for several of those projects. I also get hired as a consultant by individual small company owners who have a, who, for whom their product requires folding. Mm -hmm. And so usually they find out about me because they're Googling origami technology, looking through Google Scholar to see what papers are written about origami. Um, they find my name and then they contact me through my website. Okay. We have a little discussion to determine whether what I can do is actually applicable because um, sometimes they're looking for something that I'm not the best person to provide. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll try to steer them you know, to someone who would be a better person, but sometimes it's a good fit. And then we put together a consulting contract, there's some deliverables, I develop fold patterns, deliverables, and then they pay me. Right, cool. And I noticed you, were you an artist? Was it called Artist in Residence at MIT? Or you did something there? Yeah, so I, I have had a kind of an informal collaboration with Eric Domain. Mm -hmm. um, was 
probably the, the top theoretician of folding in the US. He's a professor at MIT and, um, and uh, we kind of kicked off our collaboration relationship with an artist in residence program there uh, for about a week. And then every two years or so, I go back and we kind of spend a week together and bat around folding problems and try to solve them. Um, there's a kind of there's been a single kind of a broad, uh, complete theory of folding that we've been nibbling at the edges of for about ten years. That we one of these days we'll wrap it up and and write it up as a book. Right. Wow. And so on that note, um, I'm thinking about folding paper again and yeah. your approach to coming up with new designs because you, you have all of these ideas about math and um, tools that you've developed. Um, do you still work anything out with the sheet of paper and, or how do you go back and forth between your brain, your hands and the technology piece? Well, that's a good way of putting it, is going back and forth. Mm -hmm. the, the mathematical techniques are good for certain classes of shape. Okay. Um, they're especially powerful for things with lots and lots of appendages, arms and legs and wings and antenna and the like. Uh, there's, they're not so well developed for shapes that don't fit that mold, and so there I kind of have to rely more on my my intuition and understanding of how the paper moves and, and, and structures that uh, structures of creases that'll give a 3D shape. Although I still will often um, find myself, I'll, I'll work out something intuition and then realize a key dimension needs to be derived from a mathematical relationship. So then I'll grab a sheet of paper and you know, make a little sketch and set up the equations and solve for that dimension or angle, and then go back to folding with a sheet of paper, incorporating that, that little bit of mathematical knowledge. Um, so it's kind of a melange. Right. And uh, almost like a stew, I think it's more interest, a piece is more interesting the more variety of techniques that go into it. Um, you know, if it's, it, if it's, uh, you know, you're flavoring something you're cooking and if all you do is throw in pepper, it might be spicy, but it's kind of flat and one dimensional. But if you can throw in some pepper and then a little garlic and all spice and sage and a little pinch of thyme and so forth, it's more interesting. And I think that's the same with an origami design is if you can bring in a lot of different ideas in, in this one design, it ends up making it more interesting. So I'm curious, now that you're saying that, like, how do you write the recipe? Um, do you get it the first time? Or, like, it just seems really complicated. I've read you have some, some pieces with a huge number of folds. Um, yeah, so how you document and, and or do you have things that you maybe couldn't reproduce again? I'd say everything I folded once I could reproduce again, but there's a, there are things I don't want to reproduce again. Something that's really tedious and repetitive, um, yeah. I don't like. And, and there have been designs that involve a, a repeating pattern that I start on them 
And after I've done a bunch of repetitions, I realize, oh, this is really not fun. I, mm-hmm. if, I'm, if I just got started, I might say, I'm not going to do this. If I'm well into it, I, I'll, I'll probably say, well, I'm going to finish it. You know, it's the sunk cost fallacy. I put so much work into it, I need to keep going and I'm going to finish it. But, but I probably won't do it again. Right. Um, and those are things uh, like animals that have lots of scales, um, where all the scales are individually folded, or uh, probably the, the most complicated thing I folded, which took many years till I finally got around to completing it, was a cactus, uh, completely covered in spines. Wow. Um, and just each little cluster of spines was an involved little folding project. Um, and, uh, and, that, and I had to do the, then that little cluster of spines over and over and over again. Um, so by the time I finished it, I said, I, I don't want to do another one. But I have this one cactus, and that's you know, kind of proof that it's complete, proof that I could do it. Right, right. And you sell, you sell these pieces, and they're on, are they on your website? And you have traveling works, I know, as well. I do sell pieces. Most of my sales are by commission. Okay. I don't have a price list um, in part because the pieces on the website um, very often I, I won't, I don't put a photo on my website uh, or the photos that I put on my website are things that were commissioned. You know, and so that piece is already gone. Right. Got it. Or, um, or it's something that I want to keep in my permanent collection that I use for some of the traveling exhibitions. And again, it's not for sale. So just rather than having, and I don't want to have on my website, most things say not for sale and just a few prices here and there, because that's going to be frustrating right. to people. So rather I'll say, and I say this on the website, if you're interested in something, contact me, tell me what you want. Most likely I would do it on commission. And so I get a handful of commissions a year um, that then I accept and I, Hold something for them, you know. Send it. They send me a check. I send them some origami, right? And uh, and a photo goes on my website. Right. Cool. So let's talk about one specific project. It could be a commission or just something you've done. And I want to I want to dive back into paper, and and we'll probably wrap up with this. Um, so I know. I think you work with a lot of handmade papers now, and I'm, I'm curious about uh, Michael LaFosse, who makes handmade paper for origami artists, um, had a paper called, or has, I don't know. Has. Has a paper called, what is it called? Robert Lang Insect Paper. Okay, right. Um, so yeah, what kinds of papers have you explored? And then um, tell me about a piece you developed with one of those. Okay, so like many origami artists, I'm something of a paper pack rat. Whenever I go someplace where I'm likely to see some new papers, I go visit, buy a bunch of sheets. I don't know what I might use them for, but I think if I have them around, I'll find the use at some point. And at the end, I probably do, although I realized when I moved recently that as I was unpacking all my paper, I have far more paper than I could ever fold for the rest of my life if I had never bought another sheet. Uh, but I will still probably yeah. buy more if I see them because that's the way things go. Um, and uh, 
Different papers are good for different types of designs. Some require a thick, crisp paper, others require softer paper, and the uh, arthropods, insects and spiders, require very, very thin, very, very strong paper. It needs to be strong because you're going to be putting it under a, a lot of pressure as you're compressing the thin little legs and features. And it needs to be thin because you want thin little legs and features. And those two requirements are kind of at cross purposes. So um, over the years, when I was uh, designing complex insects, uh, very often I ran into the case that I could design it, but the papers that were available didn't have the, common, the best combination of properties for rendering that mm -hmm. design. Mm -hmm. I'd have to make do with what I could find. Right. And, uh, and I've, I've known Michael LaFosse for years. He makes, he's a master paper maker. He's a master origami artist, and he has made papers for his own origami for years. And he had said, you know, if, if there's a paper you need or you, uh, that, that for a particular subject, let me know. And so at some point in our friendship, I said, you know, insect papers um, would be really nice. I need, you know, it needed to be thin, needs to be strong, needs to hold a crease. And he would, and so he took that on and um, started developing recipes for it. Uh, you know, what blend of pulp? And how long do you beat the pulp to get the fibers to the kind of the right consistency? Because again, you want them, um, you want things strong. You want it to take a crease, which means there is some breakage. You know, if you to to make a permanent crease, you're breaking either fibers, fibers or bonds between fibers. But you can't break it so much that it weakens enough to tear. Mm -hmm. And of course, it has to be really, really uniform. Um, and uh, so he developed papers over the years, and he'd send me sheets, and I'd fold things, and I'd say, you know, yes, this is nice, or can you make it thinner or, or thicker, or it's a little too soft. Is there a way to crispen it up? Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And eventually he developed a really nice recipe for that kind of paper. And, so he, and, and then other people, and I would fold and display my insects, and other right. people would see that and say, Michael, can I get some of that? <laughs> and so he started selling it or, and say, making it available widely. He called it Robert Lang Insect Paper, which I was tickled by. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty widespread now. Lots of people buy Michael LaFosse's paper for, for folding these complex arthropods and insects. Right. And I think this is Abaca. Is it 100% Abaca? No. No. Okay. Hundred percent. It's the best. It's it's about a fifty-fifty blend of abaca and hemp. Yeah. Um, abaca gives gives the crispness. Yeah. Um, but 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 hemp gives it a little more a, a little more tooth. Keeps it uh, a, a little softer. Abaca yeah. make abaca gets a little too shiny, Hard. glossy, yeah. and uh, and also abaca uh, really likes to shrink right. and. So if you've got some hemp in there, that cuts down on the shrinkage, which is right. a, a big thing. Oh, that's cool. Um, do you have a favorite paper to fold, or you really just go on properties? I, I really go on properties, but yeah. but my favorite is is uh, origami dough paper from, right. from 
Right. So that's Michael LaFosse at Origamido. And I'll put a link for that in the show notes too. Um, yeah. Do you have one good paper folding story to tell me that was fun or a disaster? Yeah. Well, it was fun. Um, during the, uh, when I first hung out my commercial shingle, I put out my website and uh, this was the early 2000s. There, there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of competitors out there on the internet. Mm -hmm. So a lot of sort of unusual opportunities found their way to me. Um, and, uh, and I'd get commissions for kind of crazy things. And one of the craziest was a, a commission to fold a life-size origami version of Drew Carey for the Drew Carey show. It seems the writers had written in a gag that involved Drew Carey, his character getting interested in origami and folding a giant version of himself. Okay. And this being a weekly TV show, I had basically a couple of days to do it. Uh -huh. and, but I, because I could, I did. Um, and I folded this life-size uh, Drew Carey. It's from a couple sheets of paper. Um, in part so I could take it apart to get it into a box to ship it down. Um, but then the, unfortunately, because they're constantly rewriting the scripts, um, they, they wrote the gag out of the script before it even arrived. So it never made it on the air, which kind of was too bad. Yeah. Um, but it definitely was one of the craziest commissions I've had. Right. And was that just a plain paper or did it have any imagery printed on it or? Didn't have any imagery yeah. printed on it. Um, and uh, the, uh, so I, I, I used three sheets, one for the lower body, one for the upper body, and then one for the head because that had the most detail. And I had uh, his whole face and his glasses, um, which, <laughs> you know, were a distinctive part yeah. of his persona. Yeah. Um, just folded from plain paper, but it was very recognizable. Right. Wow, that's cool. And I wanted to ask you about when you're talking about folding these tiny little legs and things, do you use other tools? Do you use tools? Bones Absolutely. Fingers? What kind of tools do you use? Um, my go-to tool is, which I realize the audience can't <laughs> see, but it's a pair of forceps, tweezers. Okay. Um, and I use those especially for the insect legs where you need to take a really long skinny piece of paper and fold it in half. And it's so skinny, you, you can't grasp the two sides of it with your big fingers, oh, or at least right. I can't with my big fingers. So I'll use forceps. And that's probably my most common tool. And you just um, use one pair or do you have two? No, I use one pair. Yeah. So I'll clamp it, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll clamp the shape halfway across and then take my hand and wrap my hand around the other side, to, and that puts a fold right in the middle of the shape. Then I can take away the forceps, and once I got the fold started, I'll pinch it with my fingers to pinch it into shape. Um, I, other tools I use um, that are kind of specialized is a, I'll use a scoring tool, which uh, it's also called a burnishing tool. It's mm. a pointy little thing with a metal ball on the end. Yeah. And right. so I can use that to score the paper but uh, because it's got the little metal ball, it's not sharp. It won't rip the paper or cut. Um, and then I've used big tools. Um, for some of my work, I've used a laser cutter to score fold lines into the paper. And I especially use that with some of my mathematical designs 
where the only way to get the folds in the right place on the paper is to you to, to use a get them from the computer onto the paper is to use some sort of mechanical device um, because there's no step-by-step -step folding sequence to get those hundreds of folds onto the sheet of paper. Right, and so you have a laser cutter, I presume, and what size sheet can you cut? I do have a laser cutter and it can go up to two by three feet in size. And are there specifications on the type of paper you can put in there? Can you put this thin Abaca hemp blend in there? Yeah, surprisingly, I've developed recipes for the controlling the power that will actually score um, really, really thin papers. So I, yeah, so I've done a lot of scored insects that way. Right, and then you just, you can just see how you need to fold it once you have printed it out. Is that right? Well, I've made a plan. I mean, as uh -huh. part of the design is I've made a plan of the folds, including which ones are mountains and which ones are valleys. So once the folds are scored into the paper, then I can look at my plan and say, okay, these fold, this fold is pinched into a mountain fold. That fold is pinched into a valley. And I'll go through and crease okay. all the folds in the right direction according to, to my little plan. Okay. And then you can start seeing patterns i'm sure yeah. yeah wow um okay well i think we need to wrap up i want to learn more but we'll have to do that <laughs> online or another time uh, but i love i read what you said something else you said about problem solving and uh when you solve a problem you get a wonderful feeling and you want more of those feelings and i just wondered if you could elaborate on that yeah and this is something that um I think that this concept was articulated well by uh, Marty Domain and above in between the folds. This idea that mathematical mathematical concepts are are universal. We are discovering them, um, and uh, and so when you discover something new, there's a there's kind of a rush. Because at that moment, you're the only person in the history of the universe to know that universal fact. It's, mm -hmm. And it's like an explorer, you know, uh, stumbling through the jungle and then seeing, you know, a mountain that, uh, you know, you were the first person to lay eyes on that mountain. And it's not you were the first European to lay eyes on that mountain where people were living there. You're actually the first person with these mathematical things. And, and there's, there's kind of a thrill to that moment. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and you, that adds to the enjoyment. It's not it's the exclusive enjoyment, especially with, with origami. There's, there's also the fact that we are creating something beautiful. And so you, you get joy from, examining and experiencing this beautiful object. But there's, there's multiple levels of appreciation there. Um, and it's pleasurable on all the different levels. Right, and you, you seek that feeling again. I mean, I think anyone just figuring something out gets a, a glimpse of that. And as an artist, I feel like I have those moments where, where I really feel like, wow, maybe no one ever has done this before even if they have. 
um, I'm still discovering it for the first time. So, yeah. And you mentioned Between the Folds. I forgot to bring that up, but that's a wonderful film about origami. You're featured in it as well as, did you say nine artists total, I think? Or something yeah. like that? Yeah, nine artists. And that's um, pretty available on the internet. You can find it, re listeners. Yeah. So, well, thanks so much for coming on, Robert. You're welcome, and thanks for having me. Pleasure it's to talk. It's been a fun to conversation. Yeah. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed it, I invite you to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And it would be awesome if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps others find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Paper Talk, where you can read the show notes, subscribe to this series, listen to other episodes, and access all of the archived shows. Talk to you soon. Besides the season.